0: We're in Habakkuk chapter 3. We're just going to do the first 15 verses. Just a lot of information to cover in those verses. And then we'll, we're going to wrap up our Habakkuk study next week. Our passage today is a psalm. And psalms were, were songs sung to music. And what we have is the lyrics to the song, but, but not the music to the song. And this particular song is a hymn. And we might ask, well, what's a hymn? Well, a hymn is a, is a song of praise about the attributes of God, and that is what dominates our chapter uh, this morning. So let's start with a word of prayer. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what is recorded for us here, and we thank you for the prophet Habakkuk, who I think has told us some really meaningful things, uh, especially in our time as we experience a rise in crime, violence, and injustice in our Uh, immediate community and neighborhood here. We pray, Lord, that you would unveil uh, what you have in the depths of this book to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever noticed that when you're truly praising God, how right that experience is? That it it just seems right. And God is is worthy of praise. And so when we praise him, we, we are actually in sync with reality. And when we praise God, It helps us. It helps us not to be tempted to think that we know as much as God does since, you know, we're human and God is God. And in praising God, we're less likely to be praising ourselves. And what praise helps us do is it helps us to see our problems in in a proper perspective. That God is still the Lord in heaven despite what's going on around us. That he's still in control. He's still sovereign. And when we sing about him, it helps us to see all these eternal truths. And Habakkuk does this in chapter 3, the the last chapter of this book here, and he has a specific reason why he wrote down what we're going to take a look at today. Now, if, if you were to write a song, would you write things down like pestilence and plague in them? Would you write those things down? You know, that's more like goth music, not songs of praise. But, but he includes all that stuff in there, and he includes chariots and arrows and sinking mountains and su- submissive oceans in a song of praise. It's like emo praise, right? But so, so we probably wouldn't do those things, but Habakkuk does. And so let's do a, a quick review, uh, for those of you that are joining us midstream here, of the other two chapters that we covered. The original problem that the prophet Habakkuk had with God was that God had this delay. God had this delay of bringing about justice. And he was wondering, you know, how long, God? How long are you going to let this violence and injustice just keep going on in Judah without you doing anything about it? Then God revealed that that he was going to judge Judah with this seemingly more unjust people, the Chaldeans. And Habakkuk had a problem with this. He had a serious problem with this. He, he wondered, God... I, I thought I knew you. Like you are righteous, right? How 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 could you use this more violent people to judge this people, even though they're not totally just and everything? They're not totally righteous, but but those guys they're more unrighteous. How can you do that? So God was going to use the Babylonians as this instrument to to judge Judah, but but that wasn't the end of it because God's kingdom was also promised to come on earth, right? Chapter two, verse fourteen. So. It, He had this problem with the beginning of the judgment of Judah, but but then he sees like the whole picture. That that God is going to bring about about his kingdom on earth. And that sits a little bit better with the prophet. And now we are here at Habakkuk's response in chapter 3, which comes in the form of prayer, in the form of praise. And you remember in chapter 2, verse 4, where he says, But the righteous shall live by his faith. It's an interesting set of instructions because now in chapter three we have Habakkuk's response in God's vision, and this is what Habakkuk writes to us. Verse one: A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigionoth. It's as if Habakkuk is telling us that in order to live by faith, back in chapter two, verse four, the first step is to pray by faith, because that's his first response: a prayer. How are we to live by faith in our violent and unjust world, in in this community, in Oakland? Well, we begin by praying by faith. And the following verses will help us instruct us on how to pray. In verse 1, you notice the word shigenoth. Shiginoth is is some type of a musical notation, but the meaning is not completely known. And you also notice that this psalm is called the prayer in verse 1. But it's a different kind of prayer, and you're going to notice how different it is from The prayers you and I do are our typical prayers. And you keep in mind how this prayer differs from our own, because I think it's going to help our prayer life going into the future, and it's going to help us approach it in a fresh way. And I hope this, by the end of this message that it will be helpful, it will be hopeful. Verse 2, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. We read that Habakkuk addressed this prayer, the psalm to God, and he called God Lord. He used the great name of God that was given to Moses, what some call, scholars call his saving name, Lord. And from verse 2, we see that he knew the Lord. He had heard of Him and His work. Now what does the word work mean? Well, it's the same word that was used in chapter 1, verse 5. When God replied to Habakkuk's complaint, chapter 1, verse 5, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you, plural, would not believe if told. So what was this work? Chapter 1, verse 6, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. That was the work. God's work was raising up the Chaldeans to bring in this oppressive group of people against judah to to judge his own people so in chapter 3 verse 2 we have habakkuk's response "O lord i have heard the report of you and your work that judgment oh lord do i fear it's a scary thing coming right habakkuk is fearful of what's going to happen what's coming and do you notice the honesty in habakkuk's prayer he was afraid he had a frank honesty with God like many of us many others before us did like like Jacob. And some folks just think of Jacob as, you know, some dirtbag and arguably so, I can't totally argue against that. But if you're not familiar with him, you can read about Jacob in Genesis chapter 27. So so Jacob was coming back to the land and, and he knew he was going to have to face Esau, who he wronged. And and when he and we get to Genesis chapter 32 verse 11, Jacob prayed Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers, with the children. And this is a frank, honest prayer from Jacob. And you know, he might be this sketchy character in in all the, the dealings that he had in his life, but at least when he comes to God, he's really honest. He comes to God really honest. He tells God, for I fear him. And so, are we frank and honest about our fears when we pray to God? You see, we don't have to put up these tough exteriors with God and pretend that we have it all together. We can be straight up with Him, you know. This is God. He knows it anyway. Right? And Habakkuk said, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord. Do I fear? You know, you don't, don't restrain yourself from telling God your fears. God will not be disappointed with you. He won't be surprised. He won't be shocked to hear your fears. He's not bothered about hearing your fears. Whatever the reason may be, we need to honestly share with God our fears. And when we wrap up Habakkuk next week, we'll we'll return to our study of 1 Samuel where we left off in chapter 16. And and I'm going to get a little bit ahead here. But in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1 through 3, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have promised or provided for myself a king among his nations. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. Now, God could have just stopped everything right there and said, Samuel, you need to act like a prophet, you need to lead. Are you a wimp? Or are you a prophet? Right? You're afraid of a violent, unjust death? Come on. But God didn't mock him like that. God didn't, didn't put him down like some people tend to do. What did God tell Samuel? And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Right? Hold the worship service. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Now, some may think that this was unethical because, you know, oh, he wasn't being totally honest here. But I don't think so. You know, if if Saul's men came questioning Samuel about what he was doing, Samuel wasn't totally obligated to say everything. Right? It was perfectly fine for him to say, oh, I'm doing this. But isn't it interesting how God responded to Samuel? Samuel. If Saul hears it, he will kill me. God saw Samuel's honest fear, his hesitation, his confusion. And instead of putting him down for it, he helped him. He helped him. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you. And you notice what God did? God didn't say, be a man. Right? Be, be who I put you here to be. God offered to help Samuel. Samuel. God didn't mock Samuel. He didn't ridicule him. He didn't put him down. He didn't discourage him. He didn't berate him, exasperate him, or dishearten him. He lifted him up. He helped him. God came down and met him where Samuel was at. And we have this beautiful, this gracious God, so much more than whom we tend to be. And that's why we have servants like Habakkuk who feel so confident to go to God and say, Oh Lord, do I fear? Right, Straight up, God is totally approachable because He doesn't treat us second class when we come to Him. When we do have problems, when we do have confusion, when we do have this cloudiness, He doesn't put us down for it. May we be careful not to treat people second class to the point where we become unapproachable and not trustworthy of people's struggles that they have. Churches are guilty of that. Right? We expect people to have all their ducks in a row and, and come, with, come to us all fixed up. Right? But we don't like it when they come messed up. Like, or we don't like it when, oh, you come messed up and you messed up uh, and we helped you and then you messed up again. Oh, how can you do that? May we not lose our approachability. And may we not become people who aren't able to hear others' concerns, their fears, their obstacles. And may we not be on the other side of that either. Where we, where we hesitate to go to God and share our fears and share our concerns. God will not think any less of you if you come to Him with the things that you're fearful of. And some of us may struggle that if we bring our fears or, or these negative things, these things of negative uh, nature to God that, that we're lacking faith. Perhaps some may think that if we fear that we, we don't have enough faith or, or so we, so we hesitate to share our fears with God with other people but it doesn't work that way We have to have faith to faithfully tell God our fears. It's perfectly appropriate to take our fears to God. I mean where else are you going to take them to? right if we can't be honest in prayer we, we're just going to find ourselves pretty miserable. Because who can you take that to? You see, the, the prophet was taught, and he was given these teachings about the Lord. He had, he had been taught truth. He had been shown a vision that had moved him. The prophet had heard of God, and the prophet feared. Now, why would he fear the Lord? Well, Habakkuk wasn't like some people who hear all kinds of teachings and get all this knowledge, all this intellectual knowledge about the Bible, and, and they see what the Bible's all about. They see the visions there, but, but what they hear and what they see, it doesn't really affect them. They just like to accumulate knowledge, but it doesn't touch their heart. And Habakkuk heard about the Lord, he saw the vision, and there was this powerful response in him. Something that hopefully happens in us. That there's a response, a powerful one in us. What do we fear? Do we fear God's judgment as Habakkuk did? We see that the prophet feared God, but, but he wasn't paralyzed by his fear. He feared him, but it didn't paralyze him. And he was moved forward in his fear. He feared the Lord, but felt able to make honest requests of the Lord. And he made three requests in chapter 3, verse 2. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So in these three requests, we see we see the drivers of Habakkuk's prayer. We see that he's what's pushing Habakkuk to pray. And, it, and there's fear in there, but it's pushing him to pray. Right? He, the first thing, in the midst of the years, revive it. He wanted God to revive, to restore, to, to give life again to God's work in history and time in, in the midst of the years. The second request, in the midst of the years, make it known. He asked God to make the revival known in time, in human time, in human history. The third request, in wrath, remember mercy. He sought mercy in the midst of judgment. Habakkuk knew that judgment was coming both on Israel and Babylon. And when that judgment came, he wanted his people to be revived. He wanted God's work to be known to them. He wanted mercy in the midst of all that carnage, all that wrath. And Habakkuk had a desire to see the people continue living by faith in the difficult times, in the midst of the years. Now, Back in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. It's a truth. It's a truth from God that pushes us to prayer. How are we going to respond to God's Word when times are tough and when circumstances are difficult? We live by faith. And it starts by praying in faith. The things that are pushing Habakkuk to prayer are the things that God has said. But there are also motivations pulling Habakkuk to prayer, and those are in verses 3 through 15. The things that are pulling Habakkuk to prayer are who God is. What's interesting is that after the prophet stops petitioning in verse 2, he then begins the largest part of the psalm, verses 3 to 15, where where everything's about God. It's all about God. Verse 3 is where the hymn begins. Now, Now, why sing a hymn of praise to God in the face of this coming disaster or in our coming disasters? Possibly because Habakkuk knew that the focus wasn't to be on the problem. Rather, his focus was to be on God sometimes our problems are, are helped when we stop focusing on the problem stop focusing on our own needs our own personal needs our own personality and instead we focus on the Lord Habakkuk heard the teachings of the Lord he he saw that the teachings about the Lord were were not only just true in the past but but of what was to come that God was more than just intellectual truth just Knowing more, knowing more, that this is an active, living being. And this is an important understanding to have about God because it will influence how we are going to pray. In order for us to pray in faith, we have to have this lively view of God. That He's alive. That He actually does stuff. That He doesn't just sit up there and you're like, hmm, that's nice. And, oh, oh, well, bad move. He actually gets involved. In order for us to pray, we have to have this lively view of God, a God who delivers, a, a God who saves, who takes an active part in that. And that's what verses 3 to 15 are all about. It's all about God. He's the answer to all of Habakkuk's fears in verse 2. And we're looking at these, these key events in Israel's past, and one of the, the major ones that is referenced quite a bit is the, de- the deliverance of Egypt. Right, you, you read about that all the time when you go through the Old Testament, and even sometimes in the New Testament. And Habakkuk will now do what many of the ones before him did in the Old Testament. He will pick up the themes of the Exodus. right, Like in Isaiah 40, Judges 4 and 5, Psalms 18, 50, 69, 77, 97. And bring them into his own time in the midst of the years, as it's written in verse 2. Now let's go to verse 3. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise, Selah. His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. Do you notice what God did back then? It's something that he does now. God, the Holy One, he moves. God moves. God is on the move. God doesn't just sit on his throne and do nothing. God is involved. He takes action. He came from the desert in splendor, radiance, and plagues and pestilence surround him. He came in power. And he came with this power to bring death. Do you notice the play off the motifs of the plagues of Egypt? God came from Sinai, the desert, and he moved into Egypt with pl- plague, pestilence. Verse 6, He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. In verse 6, we read about how God was, was surveying the scene. He's active. God is on the move. He's looking. And in the Old Testament, when God looks, when God takes notice, it's a metaphor. It's a metaphor for saying, He is about to move. He is about to move and act in the lives of people. Now notice the reaction to his action. The mountains were scattered. There was an earthquake. The people were frightened. So what would this mean for our lives today? Will God act in this way today? And if so, how? Well, the book of Revelation is all about such world-ending events such as plagues and earthquakes, etc., which, which can happen in our lifetimes, And there are events that cause us distress, like that earthquake in Haiti. And perhaps the Lord is about to move again. For us to look and see that the Lord is about to move again, we are to be alert that perhaps God is about to move in the lives of people. And sometimes we can be so focused on our personal problems that we forget that there are many other people in the world. When we notice disasters like the one in Haiti, may it remind us not to be so self-centered, So focused on our own problems and what we're going to, but that we should focus on the Lord, the God of the universe. God is in charge. Jesus' second coming is coming sooner than it was yesterday. Right? And we have heard the report of it. Haven't we? We know it's true according to His Word. And we know God to be a keeper of His word. We know Him. We know God. We know His intents. We have heard of Him, like the prophet Habakkuk did. What we can do now is we ask for mercy in the midst of wrath. We know that that's coming. God, mercy. We know it's going to be ugly. God, mercy. We can ask for revival. Verse 8, was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses or on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, selah. You split the earth with rivers. Now what's being said in verses 8 and 9? Well, symbolically, the Lord is going to move in wrath against the waters, verse eight. 8, and go to war, verse 9. Again, this is is reminiscent of Exodus. There was a deliverance from Egypt via the Red Sea, the crossing of the Jordan River, and the turning of the bitter water to sweeten the wilderness. So You see that? And you notice that the response is one of earthquake and of the heavenly bodies being affected. Again, reminiscent of the book of Revelation, where the heavens are shaken and the moon is turned to blood and the stars fall from the heavens. Verse 10, the mountain saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshold the nations in anger. You went out out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah, you pierced with his own arrows the head of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. That's beautiful poetry. Kind of mean, but beautiful. Now, who are the nations being referred to in these verses? The nations are the ones who hurt the people of God, who oppress them. God will go to war against the Babylonians and the Babylonian types of peoples. There are people who will try to hurt God's people in verse 14, trying to scatter them and devour the oppressed in secret, but they will not succeed in that. God is going to find them. He will reveal them. There will be justice. It doesn't pay to be evil. It doesn't pay to be oppressive. God will show all those things to be true, and without repentance, there will be a guilty verdict. And there's this bad news coming for the unjust, the violent, the oppressive people. God will not be mocked. And we don't have the luxury of putting aside morality as people to just let things happen, the injustices and the crime and the violence. We do not have that luxury as followers of God. All accounts of right and wrong will eventually be settled. You notice that God's not passive. He's active. He's emotionally involved. And we see that God will not judge in cold blood, but God will judge in hot blood. Now isn't this helpful to know? Doesn't knowing this give us a sense of hope that justice will be will be done, justice will prevail for all the injustice that is happening in our community and in the world. We have a God who is involved in our lives and won't let this violence and this injustice get away forever. There will be a day when all our counts are settled. And something interesting about verses three through seven, I'm gonna go back through chapter or verses three through fifteen again. Oh again? Yeah, sorry. Verses 3 through 7, something interesting. Did you notice that it's all in the third person? Notice that God is referred to as He. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from His hand, and there He veiled His power. Before Him went pestilence, and plague followed at His heels. His, 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 He, Him, His, He, 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 He. he, he. Third person! And now you look at verses eight through fifteen, and and there's this change. God is referred to in the second person, you. Right? Was your wrath, was your anger, or your indignation when you rode on your horses, on your chariot? You, you, your, your, you, whatever that stuff, so on. God is speaking is spoken directly to in verses eight through fifteen. Habakkuk speaks of God. In verses 3 through 7, using the third person. And then he speaks to God directly in verses 8 through 15 in the second person. What's going on? I don't know, just thought it was interesting. (laughs) Kidding. So, verses 3 through 7, they're telling us what happens when God arrives, when God comes on the scene. What happens when God enters? Right? Well, he terrifies. He disturbs. He messes everything up. It's bright, verses 3 and 4, right? It's dangerous, verses 5. Oh, verse 5, not verses 5. Verse 5. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. It's dangerous. It's terrifying, verses 6 and 7. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of cushion and affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. So verses 3 through 7 tells us what happens when God arrives. Freaky, man. Right? And verse 8 through 15, they tell us why it is that God moves toward us. Why does God move toward us? Verse 8 starts with a couple of questions. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? Right. God, were, were you mad at the rivers or the bodies of water? Right? No. The Lord's anger wasn't against the Jordan River or the Red Sea. God does almost tell the, tear the world apart as you read verses 9-12. through 12. Right? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and ride, The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. Now why did God almost tear the entire world apart? It's all in Verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people. For the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. That's what God did in the past, and that's what He will do for us in the future. For the salvation of His people. That's why He does what He does. God does this by wrath, not on His creation, like the rivers, or, but but on the on his people's enemies. Verse 14, You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Verses eight through fifteen are showing us our God as as the protector, as the warrior who will stand not by, he won't stand forever, he won't stand by forever, letting injustice and violence take over his people. Maybe for a time, but not forever. God will deliver his people. God will deliver salvation to his people. And we see that God has a a grip, a strong grip on, on Habakkuk's faith and also on his imagination. You're looking at verses 3 through 15, um, you can just sense that the the prophet had this this deep, rich understanding of God and his power. That that there's this lively, this fascinating depiction of God and his invincible power. Now, Now, what is it that moves Habakkuk to prayer since that's what this psalm is? What moves the prophet to prayer? He enjoys God. He is delighted by God. God is fascinating to Habakkuk, and that drove him to prayer. Perhaps that is one of the problems in my own prayer life. I'm not delighted enough in God. I'm not fascinated enough in God. I think of God as whatever, but I'm not totally delighted in him. I'm not fascinated by him. In Psalm chapter forty three, verse three and four. Verses three and four send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring to me your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. And that's the way I need to look to God. To have an exceeding joy in him that will pull me into prayer. Our family has a dog a dog named Joey. He's a lab. He's uh, my favorite dog. Um, but he really doesn't like strangers, especially if you wear helmets. If you wear helmets, he's going to tear that helmet off your head. He does not like helmets. But when, but when a member of our family walks through the door, he does this welcome home ritual. He goes nuts Right, his ears go back. His tail starts wagging like he wags, but it's not just his tail because he wags it so much that he's like wagging his whole backside because he's so excited. It's like woof woof, and he has to put something in his mouth, whatever it is, whatever's closest to him. He has to put it in his mouth, so his shoes, socks, toys, whatever. Little children, and he'll run around, <laughs> he'll run around the dining room and the living room for several minutes. And I'm just like, oh, what's wrong with this guy? <laughs> Knocking everything down with the kid in his mouth, and he does, and he does several laps around. On the furniture and he'll come up to me and, and he'll want attention and he'll force whatever's in his mouth onto me like my kid. And he's exceedingly joyful to be with us. He's totally delighted to see us and it's so pleasant for him to have us around. He's a dog. But he knows how to show how exceedingly joyful and satisfied he is when, when we're present when we're with him. Now, we're not dogs. We're actually dumber because we're referred to as sheep in the Bible. (laughs) But as people, as conscious, believing worshipers of God, how much more are we to be delighted, exceedingly joyful to our God? If my dog can do that. Habakkuk could have done something else instead of writing verses 3 through 15, right? He could have been like me. Totally not artistic at all or creative. Or and I would, I would have written it like this. The Lord is an omnipotent warrior who ransacks the universe in order to save his people. Selah. <laughs> that would be so boring. Habakkuk could have saved a lot of trees, though. He could have saved a lot of ink. And he just could have used my phrase, The Lord is an ino- incom- in- non- incompetent, omnipotent warrior who ransacks the universe in order to save His people. Selah. A lot of trees would have been saved throughout the history of Bible writing and parchments and stuff, right? But how would that come across to us? Would we get the same sense of excitement and joy that, that, that He has in our God? And that's why... You know, even though I'm not artistic, I love art. There's something deep about it that can't be presented in just the Lord is omnipotent warrior. who ran Right? It's something deeper. There's some, we're getting the depth of his poetry here, the depth of his psalm here. And hopefully we can catch some of that excitement and thrill because God is his exceeding joy. Verses 3 through 15 were written to, to help us. To show us how thrilled, how excited, how joyful Habakkuk was with our God. And I'd like to wrap it up by going back to the end of verse 2. In wrath, remember mercy. And how this applies to us, especially in the light of, of the violence and the crime and the injustice that we face here in our immediate neighborhood as well as Oakland in large Now, just this past week, a neighbor who volunteers at our church's farm, um, Funktown Farm, she was mistaken to be a prostitute. So the the pimp that thought that she was his prostitute, he tried to kidnap her. He tried to abduct her because he thought that she was running away. And so he, he went after her and he chased her. And he was going to pull her into his car, and, and so she ran, in, ran away. She ran into a local business and phoned the police. And the police told her, you need to move. You need to move right away. This guy thinks that you're her, and you actually look a lot like her. And she did actually run away, but he thinks that you're here. You need to move. So a couple of the staff here and a couple of the interns here, they helped her move. This week they, they served her, they got a chance to talk with her, they, they were they were helping her in her trouble, and, and so we continue to face these troubling times in our in our neighborhood, in our community. We face things that people elsewhere don't. And there are there are many things that, that we can plug in into the remembrance of mercy. Just like for this gal here. Lord, remember mercy. You know, even though she was uprooted from where she's been living for quite a while, she found a community here. She liked it here. Lord, mercy. And perhaps you or a loved one, you, you know, you got a bad, bad diagnosis from a doctor. Or you're, you're losing your home. Or your spouse is leaving you. Or you lost your job. Whatever is troubling you. An addiction has its grips on you. You can't shake it. Lord, Remember mercy. The very petition of mercy from Habakkuk tells us what he's thinking. Because how can Habakkuk petition mercy from God unless God really does know something about mercy? You don't ask something of someone that he doesn't have a clue about what it is. Right? So there's an assumption here. The prophet assumes that God has it. That God has mercy. And this tells us that the mercy is with God. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 31 through 33. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though He, he cause grief. What? God causes grief? He, I didn't write it. He caused grief. He will have compassion according to the abundance of His steadfast love. For He does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. And that's, that's a key thing there. He does not willingly. What does that mean? It means that he does not from the heart afflict or grieve the children of men. God does afflict. He does grieve the children of men. But his heart isn't in it. And you talk about the mercy of God. I mean, God, God cares, right? God cares about our character. And just like parents care about their children maturing and stuff, they, parents don't always protect their children from everything, at least responsible parents don't, right? You, you need to let your kids kind of grow a bit. You kind of, and God is the same way. You know, he, 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 caused, he does cause grief. He loves you. He wants you to grow. He wants you to mature. But his heart's not into it. He's not malicious. It's not like I, I want my kid to learn how to cross the street. I'm like, go ahead. Go ahead. Ah, didn't learn. It's not like that. His heart's not in that that way. But he does want to help us learn how to cross the street. In 2 Samuel chapter 24, I'm moving ahead in Samuel again. David numbered his people, which was a sin. That was wrong. He wasn't to do that. And we won't get into that because we'll save that for the Samuel study. But the prophet Gad went to David and and gave him three choices for his sin of numbering the people. One was three years of famine. Go pick David, A, B, or C. Three years of famine, three months of running from your enemies, or three days of pestilence. Choose one. Then David in 2 Samuel 24 verse 14 said, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great but let me not fall into the hand of men. Do you see how David is thinking? He, he, he knows the nature of God. And, and I hope I can think that clearly when I'm in that grade of distress, that I can think that clearly to, to know the character of God like David. He knew the character of God. And in the midst of that trouble, he could cry out to God and God will be merciful. And that's who our God is. He's merciful. And some of us us have this inaccurate view of God. We we think of God, we see him as like a gorilla. Let me try to explain. Back in uh, August of 1996, this this three-year-old boy fell into the gorilla enclosure at the Brookfield Zoo. I don't know if any of you remember that. Um, So this toddler fell 18 feet onto the cement floor where there were seven gorillas. And, and some of you may wonder, now how in the world did that three-year-old climb over the barrier and fall into the enclosure? Now if you have to wonder that, then you have to work in our toddler ministry, and it will clear it all up for you. <laughs> anyway, the, the little boy, he was alert when, the, when he, they took him to the hospital, and he was listed in critical condition. But, but let's back up to when he was in the, the gorilla enclosure. He's laying on the concrete floor. How in the world are we going to get that kid out of that enclosure with seven gorillas? How are we going to do that? Well, there there, there was a seven-year-old female gorilla named Binti, and she had a baby on her back, so she had this motherly instinct. She uh, she, She picked up the boy. She cradled him in his arm, in her arms, and, and then she, she walked across the enclosure, turning her back against other gorillas, protecting and shielding the boy, and she walked him to the, to the entrance of the, the enclosure where, where the zookeepers could get the boy. And then, so, so we're amazed, right? We're amazed that this, this powerful animal was able to protect this boy, walk him across the enclosure, get him to the help that he needed, Wow. Yeah, but how many how many kids do you want to entrust to Binti, right? How many kids do you think you would do that with? Oh, that's cool. Push another one. Look, check it out. <laughs> look, look at what she does. Right, and so that's the way some of us think about God, right? Thinking that mercy is an exception rather than the rule. That. The, you know, some of us have this gorilla-type view of God, that oh, that, that's just a one-time, that's just a one-time thing. You know, if you pushed another kid in there, that wouldn't happen. They'd eat them or whatever. Um, even though they're herbivores, and it's. <laughs> but it's in God's nature, right? So, so in those times, we don't always know exactly what to pray for, but but we do know. That God is merciful. That it's not an exception for Him. And we can pray for that mercy. That's something we can count on from God. It's in His character. It's in His nature to be merciful. No matter what we're going through. No matter the the circumstances in our life that, that we face Mercy is not an exception of the Lord. It is His character. So in our fears, in our trials, in our distress, in our injustices, in, in the unemployment, in in your problematic relationships, whether it be marriage or with your kids or whatever, or in the financial problems, especially in this economic time, in our health problems, in the death of loved ones. We just had a, a woman in our body who just lost her son this past weekend. He was just... Playing basketball, and um, he, he pulled himself out of the game. He sat down and he had seizures and he passed away. That's in our body. And all those things, remember mercy. All of those things are not fun. But when we find ourselves in those moments, God is there. With his mercy. It's in his nature. So in those times we don't we just don't know what to pray for, but we do know that he's merciful and we can pray for that. Let's pray. God, we see that mercy is not an exception with you. It's, it's it's in your very nature to be merciful. And you move forward in the salvation of people. And when we are faced with difficult times. Help us to remember your mercy. Lord, I I pray especially for the mother who lost her son here. Lord, remember mercy, please. In Jesus' name, amen.